we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We read the chapter taking as our text verses 13 through 17. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it, if when ye shall be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps." who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 
who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing he may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, throughout this passage, God is speaking to us as to how we are to conduct ourselves as citizens of this great nation in which we live. As Christians who are concerned with divine ordinances we could foolishly conclude that God is not concerned about the way in which we submit or relate to civil government. Peter has made much of the fact that our citizenship is heavenly. We're pilgrims, we're strangers. And therefore, we might be tempted to conclude then that over against worldly rulers, we have a spirit of pride. We don't need to listen to you. Our citizenship is heavenly. We might conclude because we're Christians and the ruler perhaps is an unbeliever that especially then we surely do not need to submit to authority. The Roman Empire during Peter's time was a bastion of evil. It was filled with corruption. And this posed a temptation for the newly converted Christians during the apostles' time. Wicked Nero held no respect in the eyes of Christians. God demonstrates here that our honest conversation that we looked at in the previous verses among the Gentiles extends to every area of our lives. And he begins now with the air of authority. There's an inborn rejection against authority that belongs to our sinful natures. We're rebels, and we don't want to submit to others. We will submit where it's appropriate. We will submit where we desire. We will submit to that with which we agree. But we do not desire, and we are not willing of ourselves readily to submit. And American culture engages and encourages that spirit of individualism, that spirit of rebellion. Don't listen to anybody else. You just do what you want to do. And don't worry about what anybody else says. We see this in us as there's times when we bristle at authority and we pass it on to our children so that we often see in them that same bad attitude with regard to authority. Pride, selfishness, rules as we esteem self above others. So quickly and so easily that takes hold in our families. It shows itself in the schools and it shows itself in society and our attitude toward the government. 
The apostle here addresses what must be our attitude, that of submission. Just this week in Sioux Falls, there were those who rebelled against the government, who took part in illegal gatherings and caused all kinds of difficulty for the policemen. There are those who write books bashing the presidents, those who are in authority. It's easy to get caught up in that spirit. But we're reminded here in this passage, you are God's servants, verse 17. Literally, that word servant there is slave. And the idea is this, you belong to God. God has bought you with a price. And as God's slaves, you are not your own. You are not to pursue your own will. Your life is not about you. It's not about what you want, what you think is right. Your life is about God and about His glory. And as God's slaves, this is how you are to live in the midst of the world. You must submit to the authority that He has established in your life. And first of all, that authority is its evident among the government. To Him we submit. For His glory we live. And we look at this passage then. God's slaves... Noting, first of all, the divine authority. Secondly, the submission to which we're called here. And finally, the purpose for it. For the Lord's sake, we read in verse 13. We call Jesus our Master and our Lord. And we need to understand what that entails. God does not desire that as Christians, who now know the new life that's ours in Christ, that we turn our backs on this world. Or that we try to live in isolation from or separation from this world. We are in the world, even though we're not of it. Even though our citizenship is not earthly, we find ourselves as citizens of earthly nations. God calls us to live in this world. He calls us to live in all of the relationships of this world as pilgrims and as strangers. And we seek to do so living as Christians in every area of life and in all of our relationships, in a way that those relationships reflect the sanctified life that is ours in Christ, and that we're using those relationships then for the glory and honor of God. Your husband, your wife, your children, employees, employer, elders, pastors, professors, rulers are all appointed by God. And God's the one who establishes then positions of authority in our lives. And Christ is ruling you and me through them. We confess to be pilgrims and strangers who seek to live our life before the face of Jesus Christ. Our life is not about me. It's not about what I want. My life is bound up in Christ and in His life and pursuing His will in thankful praise for our salvation. Now, beloved, this requires prayer. It requires self-sacrifice. This requires the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And our submission flows from this confession. It's for the Lord's sake. We don't obey because we can understand why. We struggle with that sometimes. We don't see the reasonableness of it. We can't understand why this would be a good idea for us. But for the Lord's sake, God says do it, and we submit then to God's sovereign will. 
Now we understand there's a place in our lives then for obedience without explanation. And we experience that with regard to God's word. God says, this is what you must do. And God does not give us an explanation for it in all situations. And at times we wrestle with that as parents. And we realize there's a place as parents to set before our children demands without needing to give explanation. This is God's will for you. This is what you must do. And this is how you show your love for God and your respect for authority. There are other times when explanations can be helpful. And we then give an explanation concerning the circumstance, the consequences, and are able then to lead and to guide one into understanding not just what they need to do, but also why. God is our owner. He's purchased us with a very specific purpose that we are not our own. We are now to serve Him and we are to live for Him. He chose us, we know, before the foundation of the world that we would be His own. And Peter brought that out in chapter 1. That we are those who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In time, He worked the one by which we are regenerated. And the apostle talked about that here in the passage that we read. In time past, we were not a people. Now he's talking there about the temporal experience. From eternity we were, but in time we were not a people. Now ye are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God giving us to Christ and God pouring His Spirit into our hearts so that we live unto Him. God exalted Jesus Christ to be our Prince and our Savior. Now we're inclined at times to give far more significance to the truth of Jesus Christ as Savior than Jesus Christ as Prince or Lord. He not only saves and delivers from sin, but He also is the one who requires that we do as He bids. He is Lord. And we submit then to human ordinances because Jesus Christ is Lord. The one ruling all things in authority is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's been given absolute rule from the time of his ascension into heaven. He rules the wicked by his sovereign power. He rules the church and his people according to his love and grace. Because Christ's rule is not arbitrary, and because we understand the doctrine of providence, we confess that God does not do anything without significance, without reason. And that everything God does in our lives then serves the purpose of our salvation and His glory. Also as pertains to those whom He places in authority over us. He is the one who puts specific rulers in their offices for the good of His church. Even though the church can't see how it could be good. Even though the saints struggle at times to see how could this one be a positive influence for the church. God sovereignly places that one there. And Jesus Christ, as Lord, rules that one for the good of His church and for His glory. When we submit to authority, we submit to Christ. And you children know that. When you submit to your parents, you submit to Christ. When we submit to authority figures in our lives, we're submitting to Christ. And the opposite is true as well. When we refuse to submit, We're now rebelling against Christ. When you talk back to your parents, when you refuse to submit, you are rebelling against Christ. That's how serious of a matter it is. 
when we rebel against the government, against office bearers, we are rebelling against Christ, who is the one who placed them in that position of authority. For the Lord's sake, the apostle here says, Jesus bought us. We belong to Him. And we're always His. Body, soul, spirit, mind, everything belongs to the Lord. And God calls us then to live unto Him in everything that we do. The whole of our lives has a purpose. God, His glory, His honor. Are you living for yourself? Or are you living as a slave, a servant of Jehovah God? Do you confess Jesus is the Lord of your life and you are called to submit to Him in everything? Or do you say, I'll submit to Him in some areas, but not with regard to everything. So easy that is for us, isn't it? To compartmentalize our lives. And we say, well, we'll submit here. For sure we'll submit when it's something that others are going to see in public. But in my private life, in this situation, in that situation, I'm going to do what I want to do. Regardless of what I know is the will of God as He makes it known through the authority in my life. Beloved, this truth that we are God's servants has significant ramifications for every area of our life. And that's what the apostle here is getting at. This truth that you are the servants of the Lord requires of you now that you have to submit to every human ordinance for the Lord's sake. Now that's astounding. The question right away comes up in our minds. How do we determine which civil governments are worthy of our submission and which are not? God removes that question from us. And God establishes the principle that you, as my servant, are to honor the civil government under which you live for the Lord's sake. Christians don't have to try to look at the institution, study them, try to figure out what's the purpose behind them, what are the decisions they're making, what are their motivations, and then decide whether they'll submit or not. Christians don't need to look at the government and make sure they agree with everything that's going on. Christians don't sit down and say, well, what's going to be the consequences of this situation or that circumstance? And then make their decisions based on consequences that are appealing to them. No. God says, submit. Submit, not for the sake of the government. Submit not because the government is legitimate. Submit not because the rulers are good men. Submit for Christ's sake. Even though those rulers are evil men, even though the decisions they're making are ungodly, you submit for my sake, God says. So that Christians can look a king or a president in the eye and inform them, God has placed you in that position of authority. And you are to rule on God's behalf for God's glory. That's your calling before God. And Christians can inform them, even though you may be a wicked, godless man who doesn't desire to do so, who doesn't deserve to be honored, we will submit to you and we will honor you for the Lord's sake. God has placed you in office for our good and for our salvation and for His glory. And God is praised then through our submission. 
Now it's in this context that the apostle includes the words of verse 16 as free. Not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. And we look at that in more detail a bit later. But first of all, how do we understand that freedom then? God's children live in freedom in relation to fellow men and the devil. Prior to conversion, the Christian stands before God as a condemned criminal, worthy of death. He's shut up in the prison of sin, bound in the service of the devil. But God has redeemed his child. Jesus Christ broke the prison doors open. And Jesus Christ has thrown open the fetters of guilt and shame. And he's freed his children from that bondage. The spirit of Jesus Christ now lives within us. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And it's no longer the slave toiling in fear and work that he abhors. It's now the child of God, living by the power of the Spirit, delighting in the wonder of that new life that is in Jesus Christ and desiring to walk in thankfulness in every area and in all of his relationships. The liberty renders unnecessary then all the ceremonies, all the observations of the civil law during the time of Moses, freedom is enjoyed within the realm of God's commandments. Now this freedom doesn't mean then that we may disregard fellow men, nor that we can just set aside civil authorities. It doesn't mean that the Christian could not be subjected to the most inhumane of treatments, degrading labor, even being forced to do that, which is worthy of an animal. Notice the apostle talks about that later on in the chapter. It may be that you're going to suffer. And you need to be subject not only to good masters, but also to those who are froward. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, you should take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. That's acceptable with God. And then uses the example of Jesus himself. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Freedom means that the child of God is free in relation to the judgment of fellow men with regard to what he is to believe. No man has the power to dictate what I must believe in matters of religion and moral duty. I act on the principles of my master who's in heaven. I am subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake. And it's in that subjection to Christ that I enjoy freedom. Obedience is to be rendered to him alone. There's one that we will face, and that is Jehovah. Now, in relation to Jehovah, then, we're servants, we're slaves. God has bought us to be his own. We belong to him. He paid the price of his own son. And we do, then, what God commands. Many do what God commands, but they don't do it for God and for His glory. We are implicit in our obedience. We are impartial in that obedience to God. We are cheerful and we are persevering. Four things we can say. We do what He commands when He commands it. 
We're implicit in our obedience. But secondly, it's not impartial. It, it is impartial. It's not as though we try to figure out when will we obey, when we, won't we obey. We need to keep all that God requires. We know that we obey God, not men, when rulers require of us something that's contrary to God's law. When parents or teachers even try to get us to do something that's sinful or wrong, we obey God rather than men. But our obedience is to all of God's commandments. And that's our prayer, that God will work in us the grace by which we keep all His commandments for His glory and honor. Not allowing ourselves to pick and choose which ones. That obedience is cheerful. It's from the heart. It's not in a spirit of bondage, but in a spirit of thankfulness and a spirit of joy. And that obedience is persevering. God doesn't just require of us that we serve Him for a couple of years and then we enjoy the pleasures of sin or that we enjoy the pleasures of sin now and say, well, we'll serve Him in a couple of years. We serve Him day and night, all of our lives, even through death, unto everlasting joy. While we're in this world then, as citizens of Jehovah God, as his slaves, we're called to live as citizens of this nation here on earth. God freed us from bondage to the world and the institutions of the devil. And he ordains that for a time now, we remain on this life and this earth and live in subjection to the institutions of men. We live as slaves to God, joyfully submitting to him in a delightful service. Now, that service involves submission. And we want to look at that submission. Submit yourselves, the apostle says here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Verses 13 and 14. Now, this seems a very strange admonition. Every ordinance of man. Surely there are some ordinances of man that we need not submit to, that we're not bound to submit to. And it's important that in no way we take this as a blanket requirement to submit to everything that anyone would ever require of us. We understand here the connection in verse 13 to governors and civil government. So that the reference is to these ordinances of men that have to do with the government, the king and the governors. Now there's a reason why Peter words it the way he does. The Jews held themselves to be bound to be subject to the divine ordinances of God, but not to earthly ordinances of civil magistrates. They would submit to what the Bible said, what Moses said, what was written by the time of the judges or David, but they would not submit to human ordinances. And human institutions, they doubted. They cast them into question and denied even the need for submission on the ground that we are the chosen people of God. We are those who are God's elect according to the foreknowledge of God. We're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. We don't need to submit to men. Those who did yield obedience would do it merely for the sake of convenience rather than obligation. Peter now comes by the inspiration of the Spirit to these Jews and says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. 
as it pertains now to the government. Now notice, Paul doesn't call them to obey every human ordinance of the government. Submit to it. There are times when Christians cannot and may not obey human ordinances. Disobedience is required when those ordinances would require of us to sin, to do something that would violate God's will or God's favor. And Peter himself knew that. You remember Peter and John, when they came before the Sanhedrin in Acts 5, in verse 29, Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The authorities said, you may not preach in the name of Christ any longer. Peter said, we have to. We cannot but speak in the name of Jesus Christ. And we will obey God rather than men. The command is not obey, but submit. And the command to submit is without exception. Even when you cannot obey, you submit. What is submission? We understand submission from the Heidelberg Catechism as it points out in question answer 104 that we are to honor, love, and show fidelity to those who are in authority. Included in that submission is a reference even to those who are revealing weaknesses, revealing infirmities, that we still submit to them, we still pray for them. We show honor, love, and fidelity. Now how difficult toward wicked Men, But that's the calling of submission. Looking at our passage then, the apostle here, again by the inspiration of the Spirit, after having described the joy of the Christian in such grand language, describing who we are and what we are by the grace of God, that we are people that have been set apart by God, have been given the glory and the wonder of knowing ourselves to be that peculiar people, holy nation, now reminds them with respect to human institutions for the purpose of government, you are on the same level as all mankind with the duty to submit. The Christian pilgrim is not one who opposes his magistrates, who plots ways to organize opposition against them. We submit. And we submit even when that submission requires of us suffering. When it requires unjust punishment, we submit. We don't fight back. We don't curse and swear at those who persecute us. This is part of the laying aside of the fleshly lusts, as we noted in the previous passage, and living an honest conversation among the Gentiles. Now imagine the impact of that. And we readily can see that in our day. We look around us at the attitude of the world toward authority. And beloved, we ought be shocked. We see how children treat their parents. We see how students deal with teachers. We see what the world does with regard to authority. And we're alarmed. We see what they do with regard to the government. How they lead protests. How they rebel against. How they damage property. It's no wonder that there's so much unrest in the midst of the world about us. It's no wonder in the realm of sports it's so hard to find referees. How little respect they receive from parents, from players. The world has no idea of the seriousness of the fifth commandment as it applies to authority and government. And what's the result? 
The institutions break down and God shakes the foundations and society devolves into increasing chaos. Over against that, we shine as lights in the midst of this world. God's children, His servants, displaying an entirely different attitude and perspective. Now, Peter understood the seriousness of this admonition. And just so we understand that Peter was not writing here in a glass house. Peter wrote this admonition, again, guided by the Spirit, singled out to write this, in mid-60s A.D. Nero's mother wanted Nero to be the next ruler, even though Claudius was the heir apparent. So what did Nero's mother do? She had Claudius poisoned so that Nero could become the ruler at the age of 17 in the year 54. Nero was not a good ruler. He was a very evil ruler, constantly concerned that someone else was going to take over the throne. And so what did Nero do? In the year 55, he had his stepbrother killed. He executed his mother in the year 59. His first wife was executed in the year 62. Seneca, his former counselor, committed suicide. Nero was a tyrant. When Peter was in the city of Rome, where Nero ruled, Rome was known to the Christians as Babylon. They believed it to be the great whore that was spoken of in the book of Revelation. In 64 AD, a fire broke out that was blamed on the Christians, which likely had been set by Nero himself to try to accuse the Christians. And the persecution then of the Christians in retaliation of that crime resulted in unprecedented persecution. Persecution unlike anything the church had experienced prior to that. It was this persecution that would eventually claim the life of Peter. Peter's not naive about the rulers of the world. Peter didn't grow up in a so-called Christian nation. Peter knew the depravity of human nature, the tremendous evil that the wicked rulers were performing. And God moves Peter to write this in that context. Now Jesus already had established that rule to the disciples as he was teaching and preaching, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. They struggled with that. Render to Caesar what Caesar's? The command of Jesus was made crystal clear by the apostles. Peter, I mean Paul in Romans 13, every soul is subject to the higher powers. And now Peter says, submit yourselves to every human ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Now, Peter could set this before the Christian community of his day. How much more, beloved, is it before us? We have rulers who are immoral, rulers who commit barbaric activities, but none compare to Herod, to Nero. Peter now begins then his application of the power of the gospel to the child of God to move that child of God as a slave of God now to live honestly among the Gentiles to this area first of all. He knew this would be an important point that had to be emphasized. As God's people live honestly in the midst of this world, here is an area where they need to examine themselves. 
The Roman emperors, wicked men, cruel men, some even claiming to be divine, requiring of people to worship them, putting to death the people of God. Now, it was no wonder that the Christians in these days concluded they didn't need to submit to these wicked men. The instruction of Christ and the apostles had to have come as quite a shock to them. Imagine living with your relatives being killed by the authorities and you come to church on Sunday and the minister opens the scriptures and reads this admonition. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, for so is the will of God. This would be earth shattering. This is shining as a light in the midst of the darkness in which they found themselves. These ordinances that are human, that are earthly, but those that have the life of Christ, who are strangers in the world, are called to be subject for Christ's sake. Because God instituted government. Government is not of the people. Government is of God. And God instituted it for the sake of His church and for His glory. God instituted government with the first human family, the first expression of that authority and that submission. And everything else flows out of that fundamental institution. Sin has corrupted the institutions, but sin has not removed the calling that is given to Christians. As long as God's children are in the midst of this world, renewed by grace, they are called to submit. Now the apostle goes on here, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Christ not only sets the presidents, the prime ministers, the princes, but also the senators, the legislatures, the rulers, those who are in the lower levels of state, county, civil government. And the calling that God gives to those rulers is laid out clearly here. Punish evil, reward the good. Those who are evil, who are breaking the laws of the land, laws of the land which ought reflect the truths of God's word, need to be dealt with. And those who are well-doing are those who are law-abiding citizens. All rulers know the difference between right and wrong. Even wicked men. We make that assertion on the basis of Romans 1 and Romans 2, which makes clear that known even to the wicked, is the truth that there is a God and that there is that which is right and wrong. They know what's right and wrong. They know what ought be and should be enforced. Now as sin develops through the ages, we see what happens. Increasingly, laws are made that approve of sin and that condemn what's right before God. And we see that happening in our land. Homosexual marriage is promoted. To speak against it, to condemn it, is hate crime. For punishment or for praise. That's the position that is given by God to these magistrates, these rulers. Now that qualification, you know, it's an important principle taught through Scripture. And that is that the ruler has authority in the sphere of the state. He doesn't have authority in the home. He doesn't have authority in the shop or in the church. The government has no authority, in a sense, in our home. In this sense, a man may be given to swearing and cursing, to abusing alcohol and drunkenness, 
He does that in his home. The government is not going to step in and do something about it so quickly if he's alone in his home. Now he steps out of his house and he starts cursing and swearing and gives himself to brawling and drunkenness. Then the state is going to intervene. They may apprehend that one. And they may then place him in discipline. Within the church, there are the powers of the keys of the kingdom that are administered by the elders. The government has the power of the sword by which it punishes evil. And while again, there's cooperation between the two in many instances, there's yet separation between church and state. While the church is registered with the government and the government pledges to protect the church, there is a sense in which the government ought not intrude in the affairs of the church. Now, due to sin, the government becomes anti-Christian. The government uses its power now to persecute and to kill those who do good, those who do well, and defend those who do wickedly. Later on in the text, the passage talks about that reality, and especially with regard to Christ. This is what happened to Jesus. Jesus did what was right. He maintained honesty and obedience. And yet what happened to him? He was reviled. He suffered and ultimately was crucified. That's been the case through history. Daniel did good and he was punished. What happened to Christ is going to happen to all those who are found in him. Jesus says, because you are mine, the world's going to hate you too. And the world is going to deal with you in a sinful way. Now, do we rebel then? Do we institute a revolutionary attempt to force to overthrow the government then? No. We're called to submit, even as Daniel, as Jesus, submitting. And that submission takes a number of forms. First of all, one of the most important that Jesus stressed was render to Caesar what Caesar's, the paying of tribute. We may not refuse to pay our taxes. We may not seek to evade our taxes because we believe those taxes to be unwise or unequal or sinful. We submit by paying our taxes, even though we know full well that money is going in part to support evil things. But we pray that we not be held accountable for it. We do what we can through the voting and through our witness to the authorities in order to testify against that. But we submit. We don't try to find ways to evade it. Render to Caesar what Caesar's. We submit by speaking with and showing respect to our leaders. To despise government, to speak evil of men, is condemned. We speak about their sin. We call them out on that sin. We admonish them where necessary. A government may be thoroughly evil, but that doesn't remove, again, the Christian's responsibility to submit, to submit to every ordinance, regardless of the form that it wears. Monarchy, democracy, anarchy, whatever. And finally, we submit by praying for those in authority, as 1 Timothy 2, verse 2 requires of us. We pray for the freedom of the gospel so that the gospel can go forth, for the salvation of God's church and for the glory of God's name. We pray for God to work salvation in the hearts and lives of those who are in authority, if it be His will, that they might be used for the good of the church. 
We pray that God equips those whom He calls with the strength they need to rule well. The passage concludes in verse 17 with four admonitions. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Four admonitions that summarize that submission and define the relationship between Christians and their rulers. Honor all men. Rather than this being a calling to love our neighbor, as we find elsewhere in Scripture, this is more specifically, again, referring to rulers. Honor your president, your congressmen, your law enforcement officials, your judges, your mayors, your councilmen. And honor them by recognizing the office that they hold is by Christ. And see Christ's hand in them. Secondly, love the brotherhood. It's hard being pilgrims and strangers. It's so easy to disagree over details related to these admonitions. So easy it is to get upset, to promote our own ideas, to criticize others as brothers in Christ. Love the brotherhood. We experienced that during COVID. It's going to continue to be a struggle for the church throughout the ages until Christ comes back. The devil uses authority and the challenges of submission and honor to try to divide the church, to divide the brethren. Love the brotherhood. And then there also is that application. There may be some of the brothers, sisters, that land in jail unjustly. Uphold them. Forget yourself. Visit them. Support them. Show love to the brothers. Pray for one another in the calling to submit to authority. Thirdly, fear God. Only God's children are able to fear God. And that is a fear that rises from the work of God by His Spirit in the hearts of His children. And that fear for God is a gift of grace earned by Christ. It's a power by which we know the love of God and we know God as our covenant friend. And we desire to live in obedience to Him. And we see His hand then in our lives, in all the situations. We submit because we fear God and because we love God. And that fear of God underlies all our decisions, all our sacrifices. It becomes the motive behind our submission. I love God. And out of fear for God, I will submit for His sake. That fear of God is the motivation of loving one another. God brought us together in His love and in His mercy. He binds us in this spiritual warfare. We're all in pursuit of one goal, the glory of God. And that fear of God unites us in that desire as we fear God and look forward to heaven as our eternal dwelling place. Finally, honor the king. Everything's summed up with honor the king. And honor encompasses the whole of our calling toward those in authority. Submission, obedience when possible, love, respect, loyalty, those are all included in honor. God's pilgrims rise up in an area that's lost in society. We're not rebels. We show the love and the fear of God in our relationships toward authority. Esteeming others above ourselves and as servants of God, then not walking in pride, but sacrificial love. Why? What's the purpose? The apostle says, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
God's people must do good works and walk in that way of sanctification. And God will use such, he says, to silence wicked accusations. Now we realize the primary reason is always the glory of God. God's people live for the glory of God. Here the apostle is denoting another important aspect of that obedience and a reason for it. God's people show themselves to be separate, to be distinct from the wicked. The wicked are revolutionary. They're disobedient. They refuse to submit. They're rebels. God's children acknowledge God as their king, and they confess themselves to be citizens of a heavenly country, and yet they submit to earthly rulers. Now, the wicked can't understand that, and that's what this is getting at here. Put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The foolish men in the heathen world hear us say, Christ is our king. And they immediately conclude then, he doesn't believe in Caesar. He doesn't acknowledge President Biden. He thinks that Christ is king. And they then conclude they must not submit then to the earthly ordinances. That's their accusation. That's their charge against the Christians. That was their charge during Jesus' day. It's the charge that continues in our day. They believe Jesus to be king. Therefore, they deny Caesar. Foolishly, they think, if you teach and preach that Christ is king, that means you're revolutionaries. It means that you're given to revolting. And so by walking in submission, by showing respect, the Christians put to silence that ignorance. Men are foolish with regard to their understanding of the life and walk of a Christian. They don't understand why a Christian acts the way that he does. Christians are the best citizens of the countries in which they live. And those Christians taking an active role in the government and seeking to hold their leaders accountable do not always obey, but when they disobey, they still submit. And as Christians then, we need to be willing to take the punishment for that disobedience. We stand with Daniel refusing to pray to the king, willing to get thrown into the lion's den. We stand with Jesus, refusing to obey, willing to be crucified if necessary. We don't resist the punishment, but doing good means we take it. And we take it patiently, as the apostle continues later on, to state. Now, beloved, this is going to be an issue when the end of times comes. And how important it is then for us to impress upon our children the importance of that submission and for us to live it now. The anti-Christian kingdom and the authorities are going to require of us that we take the mark of the beast. If we want to eat, if we want to do business, we need to submit and obey them. Excuses will be made. Attempts will be made to justify how receiving the mark may be okay. And Christians are going to struggle in those days to stand for what's right. God will give courage to stand for what's right, to refuse to obey, but then also to submit and be willing then to take the punishment, suffering for well-doing. This will be a powerful witness that God will be pleased to draw his elect 
to himself and leave the wicked without an excuse for their evil deeds. The apostle in this context also emphasizes as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Silencing the wicked and not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness. He's addressing here a concern now that God's children are in bondage to human ordinances. And he's saying, no, you're slaves to Christ. Freedom for Christ's slaves means to be in complete conformity to the law of God. Freedom is fulfilling the purpose for which God created us, to love God and to live for Him in His glory. Adam and Eve possessed that freedom in paradise. The lie of Satan was that they could attain even greater freedom through disobedience. That was an outrageous lie. But that's a lie that comes to us today. There's greater joy, greater freedom, if only you walk in the ways of sin. Sin is the way of freedom. Sin is bondage to the devil. It's bondage to sin, and apart from repentance, it's everlasting destruction in hell. The child of God is free. A free slave bound to God through Jesus Christ. And he's free because he enjoys the wonder of salvation. The blessedness, the peace, the joy of that life that is Christ's. And as a slave of Jesus Christ, he belongs to Christ and serves Christ his whole life. He's not living for himself. He's not living trying to get saved. He's saved. And now he's living out of thankfulness for God and for the glory of God. And the antithesis is going to be readily evident in their walk and their conduct. God provides us with an arena in which we show what it means to be God's servants, his slaves. We stand sharply distinct from the world. We go to church. We pray. We support Christian education. We talk and we dress differently. And God's children submit and walk as faithful servants of God, also with regard to authority. Now, it's always a temptation for God's people to use their liberty as a cloak of maliciousness or sin, engaging in sinful behavior and then justifying that sin by saying, but I'm free, desecrating the Sabbath, and then condoning it by saying, but I'm free in Christ. I'm not bound to any human regulations. I don't need to listen in every area. A fishing license, a hunting license, it's fine. So that we begin to excuse ourselves and we make rules and we try to justify freedom, allowing certain things that are contrary to the ordinances of men and to God. Beloved, we don't use liberty to trample underfoot the authorities. We don't use liberty as an excuse to walk in sin. That's the sin of the antinomian. He says, we're free. We don't have to listen to the law. Now, they pretend to be free, but really, they're living in sin. They're in bondage to sin. And they're using their liberty then as an occasion to bring shame on what it means to be a Christian. Freedom from God's law is slavery to sin. Slavery to God's law is freedom. And by God's grace, we are slaves to the law of God. We love that law. We're connected to it. We're tied to it. It's written in our heart. And true freedom then is to be in conformity to the will of God in everything that we do and say. 
We pray for that grace. Not to be hypocrites, not to be Pharisees, but in every area of our life, living as those who show ourselves servants of the Lord. Beloved, every verse in our text directs our attention to God and the fact that ultimately it's His glory that's the focus of our witness. In verse 13, we submit to every ordinance of man for God's sake. The rulers are sent by God for a purpose, according to verse 14. The will of God is that we do well, that we walk in well-doing, verse 15. In verse 16, servants of God. And this is what it means to live for God, to suffer for God's sake, if so be that required, and to look to Him for strength, and to praise Him in everything that we do and say. Beloved, as those who are Christ's slaves, we belong to Him by a wonder of grace. This is God's will for us. So different from anything that the world can understand. The world is going to mock. They're going to ridicule. But beloved, our lives need to stand as the answer to that ridicule. As a powerful testimony of our walk in conduct. When accused of a lack of patriotism, we answer with lives of obedience to the laws of the land. Lives of submission to authority. We bow before the throne of Christ looking for a better country that is in heavenly, serving our Lord now and to all eternity. Our Lord, who's pleased for a time to rule us through rulers who do not love Him, who do not love us. But this is our calling, and we pray for the grace to submit and give Him glory in it. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our rebellion. Forgive us our spirit by which we would stand over against authority and work in us as thy servants that love and delight for thee. That sacrifice by which we give of ourselves even unto death for the sake of the one who knows and ordains all things for our good and for thy glory. Lord, strengthen and equip us in these evil days, and grant that we might be shining witnesses to the glory and honor of thy name. Amen.